The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for coming and for taking a chance to come and listen to someone named Ramesh Sairam. Some of you know me. I think you're even braver than the others because you've signed up for some pain. Um, but the rest of you had a doubt about should I show up and decided I'm going to show up. So as I said, my name's Ramesh, and um, just a quick introduction. Um, I have been coming to Common Ground since about 2006. Um, I'm a psychiatrist by profession, um, specifically interested in geriatrics and um, physical pain. Um, at Common Ground, I, um, with Gail Iverson, I um, facilitate a workshop every quarter on mindfulness and physical pain. And um, Mark invited me to give this talk. Um, and I said, I'll do it only if I um, am allowed to talk about my practice. I'm not sitting here as a teacher. Uh, I know many of you here have many, many more years of practice and much more wisdom than me. So I'm here. I'm going to use it as a AA meeting. I'm going to open up about my practice and hopefully learn in the process. So um, I don't know if you've read the topic, but uh, Mark asked me to give the topic for this uh, talk some weeks ago. So uh, what I was dealing with at that time was uh, a, there was a kind of flatness to my practice. Um, last year during a week-long retreat, I had a certain insight, and that gave me a lot of energy for a while. Um, but then last six months, I felt like I was just writing it. I was sitting every day. Um, oh, this is how it is. You know, it's like this, and a uh, certain situation would arise, and, oh, it's like this. But somehow there was the lack of zing, lack of that energy. Um, and then that F word came up, faith, uh, which is a little, sits a little um, um, uncomfortably with me, like with some other folks who come to Buddhism. Um, so, but then at the other end, um, I'm also plagued with doubt about, um, am I doing the right thing? Uh, am I doing right technique? Am I asking the right questions? So, so there was this kind of uh, dichotomous situation of faith and doubt. And so that's why I said, let me reflect it with some fellow practitioners and see what comes out. And then in the last, uh, last week, uh, again, some other situations that came up, when I realized that whenever I ask a question, my mind has the habit, very momentous habit of coming up with an answer. Again, I'm a man of science, I'm, I talk for a living, and I always have to have an answer ready, including for my own questions. And so that's what prompted some of the kind of guidance I gave during the meditation set, is that I realized that although I gave the title, Faith and Doubt in Contemplative Practice, I had no idea what contemplation was. And I heard a couple of talks on Dharma Seed, which gave me a little more idea um, so, uh, this is my first talk at this setting. So, I will not be as smooth as some of the seasoned speakers that you've heard before. So, I ask your forgiveness up front if it feels a little disjointed. So, I, I'll talk a little bit about contemplation versus thinking, and then a little bit about faith and about doubt. And hopefully, we'll stay on time. So, this, um, the, the kind of, first of all, this whole dichotomous thing. Um, it felt in the last few 
couple of months that our lives are driven by dichotomous tensions. Um, you know, in meditation practice, they talk about right effort. You know, too much effort is bad, too little effort, and then you start drifting off. Then as I looked at uh, the other aspect is samatha, concentration versus vipassana, or mindfulness. Too much concentration, and then you just get too fixated, zoned in, a lot of peace, but really not much insight or awareness. Too much vipassana awareness, then your mind's going off in a tangent every few minutes, and there's not enough concentration. So there's this tension. Then I noticed that in my life, with my wife, or with other people, um, in my professional life, you know, I can either become a micromanager or I become too detached. And so in some situations I feel I have to micromanage, in some situations I feel I have to pull back. Uh, Republicans versus Democrats up in Washington. And so then uh, in a couple of situations where I, I really felt like I was holding this tension, the question came up, is this one uh, aspect of dukkha? You know, the suffering. You know, it doesn't have to be painful, but is our lives are always, at least civilized lives are between indulgence and restriction. You know, so, and is this another aspect? I really want that ice cream, but I really should not have that ice cream. What do I do? Well, I don't know what to do. But is that dukkha? So again, I'm just asking that question. Because that's where the, then, when I ask that question, I find that my mind has a very facile answer as a thought process. And I noticed that, at least for me, it's an escape from the tension of that question. My mind is not comfortable asking uncomfortable questions. That may be an oxymoron, but forgive me. So that's what led to the dichotomy of faith and doubt. Um, as I reflected on it, as I you know, read some um, articles and listened to some topics, faith seemed to be the energizing aspect, the kind of going in, and doubt is not overdoing it and pulling back. And so that's what I'm going to try and uh, discuss today. So let's talk about contemplation versus thinking. Thinking seems to be a kind of linear, logical, intellectual process. So why is this person annoying to me? My mind goes out. He is annoying. He does this. His characteristics. Or why is this situation? There is a very objective, logical answer. But then I notice that my mind keeps on going back to that annoying person. You know, somebody may have annoyed me on a Friday afternoon at work. Now I have a three-day-long holiday weekend. That person's at a lakeside somewhere, downing plenty of libation. And I'm here mulling over that he bugged me on a Friday. I can't get, wait until Tuesday to, you know, get back at him. <laughs> so it's not him. There's something here that's... So the, the, my mind's tendency to find an answer there, therein lies something is not right there. Then I notice that, you know, when we're driving on the road, I find a lot of drivers bother me. You know, when my wife can keep talking completely oblivious to the jackass who just kind of didn't follow the rules. Am I allowed to use cuss words? Okay. I'm sure there's an editing facility here. But my wife is just, she doesn't seem bothered at all. But don't jump to any conclusion that my wife is a saint. There are plenty of things that bother her. <laughs> 
she thinks I'm annoying. Really? <laughs> you know, that is, well, that's another problem. <laughs> and so, um, contemplation. So I noticed that there is a tension when I stay with the question. So, and then one tension is the mind's habit pattern, at least my mind's habit pattern. When a difficult situation arises, I ask a question, and then there is an answer. So one of the questions I asked earlier during the sit for me was, why am I nervous? And the question was, and the answer immediately was, well, I haven't given a talk like this. I know some folks here who are making me quite nervous right now. But that's all external. I, there are other situations where I have given talks quite often. And, you know, in my psychiatry practice, geriatrics, I've given talks maybe 50, 60 times. But every talk is preceded by the same kind of experience. So it's not about that situation. There is a psychological framework in my mind that is creating this sense of insecurity. But then I noticed that that itself then became another explanation. Oh, it's because I am insecure or I am nervous. And as if that's the answer. That's just another explanation. So I have to keep coming back to what's really going on. And it's a skill to be cultivated. I mean, some of you may be contemplatives by birth. But I think, especially in the modern-day life, where we are products of scientific education, products of problem-solving cultures, and uh, it's just things that serve us well in day-to-day life can come in the way of staying with a problem. And I find that a lot in my uh, psychiatry practice, but especially in my geriatric practice, where people often face situations for which there are no linear answers. Aging, sickness, and mortality. And there is a tension. There is a lot of anger. There's a lot of frustration all the way around. Physicians think they have to relieve someone's distress. Where is the relief of distress from the loss of a loved one? But we feel compelled to do that. And on the other hand, families, patients feel like we have answers to their distress. It's, everything is externalized. Everything's out there. And we just don't, are not in the habit of coming back and staying with the question. It requires a lot of patience and persistence. And then I was listening to the wonderful series of talks on the Satipatthana Sutta by Joseph Goldstein. And then right at the very beginning, there is this answer, answer to my dilemma. So here it is. Here bhikkhus, a bhikkhu lives contemplating the body, in the body, ardent, clearly comprehending, and mindful, having overcome in this world covetousness and grief. So how quickly I noticed that I glazed over that key phrase in the middle, ardent, clearly comprehending, and mindful. So I heard contemplating the body, and I have chronic pain, and I'm an expert on mindfulness and chronic pain, so of course I know it, right? So I have pain, and I go to the body, or I'm contemplating. But no, there's not that zing. There is this, especially when it comes to pain, whether it's physical or emotional, I find that there is now a little numbing gap. This is how it is, has become another intellectual screen between 
that reality, the reality of the pain, whether it's physical or emotional distress, and my true, clear comprehension. So then the question comes back about doubt. Do I really know what's going on? But what I found to my uh, kind of a positive satisfaction was that instead of getting discouraged by my mind's amazing ability to keep conning me into thinking I know what's going on, I found this energizing. Do I really know what's going on? Really? That's another question I keep asking me. Is this real? And so that's what I found after six months of really questioning, where is this energy, where is the zing? Just in the last couple of weeks, I found the zing in realization that I really don't know what's going on. I'm a doofus. I think I'm the only one in this room, so that's why I'm sitting here. So let's talk about faith. Um, before I go, so I, I found a series of talks by Gil Fronstal. Do you know him? He's a Vipassana uh, teacher out in Redwood City, California. His website is um, uh, audiodharma.com, .org, I think. Um, and so uh, these are a series of talks on the um, five faculties. And the first faculty is faith. Um, and I found his approach, his description quite helpful. So some of what I'll be talking about in this context are borrowed from uh, Gill's talks. Now, this is a difficult word for some of us. Um, some of us were attracted to uh, contemplative practice because it seems more intellectual. Uh, it's more... Uh, experiential. Uh, it doesn't expect you to believe in anything. You, even the Four Noble Truths or the Eightfold Path, we are repeatedly told, don't buy into it. You know, these are just some guidelines and experience it. So that's something appealing to us. Some of us came as a rejection of our faiths of our families in childhood, full of you know, creeds and devotion and beliefs um, that were uncomfortable. But also in the kind of socio-political realm, uh, phrases like, are you a person of faith, uh, trouble us. You know, especially at Common Ground, we believe in inclusivity. Uh, we don't want to create barriers about you are a person of faith and you're not. You're one of us, you're not one of them. Um, I know people who, who come here who still practice you know, their own faith, whether it's Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, and they just you know, find the kind of merging quite helpful. And so that dichotomy is difficult. But faith also has a, a number of other completely distinct connotations which I found uh, very helpful. At a very practical level, it's, it means trust. We trust that people will follow certain rules and laws. I'm sure all of you turned your cell phones off or in, in a mute state so as not to disturb this, this, this session. Trust also is about confidence or faith. When you tell someone, I have faith in you. Or some of you who don't know anything about me, you just saw Ramesh Sairam and just showed up. There was a certain element of faith that Mark Nunberg would have done, a, would have done some screening before he asked me to give this talk. 
if not the faith in me, you had faith in Mark. But that's faith. But the thing that I realized was that was energizing. That got you to get out of your house on a beautiful late summer evening and decide to come here. So faith is the kind of thing that I was looking for. Not necessarily faith in a certain person or a certain creed or certain teachings, but just a sense of trust. And I'm sure you all had the experience of reading a certain poem or reading a certain article or some, listening to a certain talk and leaving it and for no, no clear reason feeling energized. Or you could be sitting with someone next to you who heard the same talk who found it increasingly boring. I'd like to meet the one person in this room at the end of the talk who finds this talk energizing. Please, I need some positive feedback. <laughs> the rest of you can contemplate on why was this guy so tedious. It wasn't me, it's you that were bored. <laughs> the other aspect of faith is, again, another dichotomy of is that some of us by nature are timid and it takes, it takes some pushing, some encouragement to take chances. On the other hand, there are some who are a little too full of confidence and they need some pulling back. So, for example, the last year has been, I've been grateful to a few people in my life who really pushed me to take on responsibilities that I would not have done otherwise on my own. So, for example, this particular thing, Mark has... Uh, it's mentioned that I should give talks for a couple of years. Um, but I, I thought I had to be enlightened, a little halo, at least uh, more than what my bald pate reflects, <laughs> before I can sit here in front of people who have far more experience and wisdom than I do. Um, I took on a medical directorship, thanks to my wife's encouragement and my colleague. And it was full of fear, doubt, self-confidence, you know, self-doubt, self-criticism, but it was this blind faith, it was kind of jumping into the abyss, but because I had faith, trust, confidence in these few people in my lives. And that's another aspect of faith, that's energizing. And I wondered if this is also what the word ardency means. There is this kind of inspired enthusiasm for what's going on, even if it's painful, even if, if it's something that's difficult, there is an energy to explore it. Pain is not always aversive. You know, ask the football players who are on the field right now. I mean, enduring incredible amounts of pain during training, during games, because they're inspired to win the games or for their teams. There's a level of inspiration. So pain does not necessarily mean that we, don't, uh, we won't try. That pain can sometimes be a kind of badge of honor. And so when you jump into an abyss, you can come out actually inspired. So, but that requires faith, this kind of blind faith. I think Mark has mentioned it a few times. Um, there's a teacher that's inspiring a lot of us right now, a Burmese uh, teacher named um, Uthejaniya. Um, and his... Uh, the kind of core of his teaching started off with right view. And again, this is something I've been contemplating on what does he mean by right view. And to me, one aspect of right view seems to be 
this psychological frame of my mind that perceives this world. So me finding that particular person annoying, he may be an annoying person. Somebody in a car that I don't know anything about really shouldn't be annoying me just because they cut across lanes once very quickly. Fifteen minutes later, I'm still dwelling on what that person did. It's no longer about that person. There is a certain frame of mind. There is a certain wrong view in my mind that is causing me to have this distress or suffering. Same about um, any insecurity that I feel about either venturing into something or uh, in a kind of interpersonal relationships. I feel threatened by someone. There may be some validity to the fact that they are threatening, but it's also equally true that I'm the one feeling threatened, and it's a certain frame of my mind that's allowing this kind of threatening feelings to arise. So I have to have the kind of faith and confidence that by turning inwards and looking at what's going on here, I may be able to deal with the situation better. But as I said earlier, too much faith can be bad as well. Every faith, every religion, every practice center has examples of people being misled by too much faith, by teachers who misuse the situation, by preachers who didn't follow their own precepts. Um, so, again, you don't want to be cynical, full of doubt, but too much faith is can, can, can also become blinding faith, the blind faith in a teacher, teachings, or your own practice. And that's what I found, like last year after that retreat where I thought I'd found a new level of insight, I then settled for it. That became, oh, I made it to this level, and I wasn't questioning it. So what's doubt? Now, doubt is not the same as too little faith. Now, it's uh, one of the five hindrances that you all may have heard of. So in that context, that particular unwholesome doubt refers to useless questions that don't lead to any intellectually meaningful answers. I'm a bad meditator. I don't know how to meditate. That person's a better meditator. These people are wiser than me. And you, and you find that if those questions come up, you don't go anywhere. You just stay in that state over and over again. And so if you don't recognize it, you're spending a lot of energy, wasting a lot of time, and getting nowhere. And that can, it has a self-fulfilling prophecy because you're not being mindful and you're kind of spinning your wheels and you can stay in the same place and not get anywhere. In that context, doubt is also about the, uh, the unanswerable questions, the metaphysical questions. What is life? What's the cosmos? Where did we come from? Uh, again, they may be good for intellectual exercises, but in terms of understanding ourselves, they're just kind of evasiveness. You know, what's the point meditating when there's so much suffering out in the Middle East? That's just another escape from the difficulty of meditating. So instead of seeing what's going on right here, that makes my mind think, if I just give it an excuse not to meditate, like people in the Middle East are suffering, so I can't meditate here. Totally non sequitur, but we buy into that. 
and we say, I'm too restless, I better go and check you know, CNN to see what's going on in the Middle East. And so that, that reckon, that's the doubt as to don't accept the story as to why I can't sit right now. That's the first kind of inclining of wholesome doubt. Is it not doubt about the practice, but doubt about the story that this mind has come up with just now about why I can't meditate. But the good aspects of doubt are there's a level of curiosity, not taking a kind of facile answer for granted. And that's, that's not easy to come about. It comes in... It comes in spurts because we are so much in the habit of either intellectualizing a situation or accepting an answer for what it is. I notice that the phrases, you know, this is how it is, or it's like this, have become, my mind believed that it was actually seeing things as they were. So, for example, if I felt angry, and so I would say, this is how it is. And the first time I heard it, and for the first couple of years that I practiced, that made sense because before that, when I got angry, I was off with the story about whatever made me angry. So I was never with the anger. Then when I started practicing, it's like this, or this is how it is, it at least allowed my mind to come and stay with the anger. But then that became my plateau but I was not really studying the anger. So over the last year, my mind was less, had, had a reduced tendency to go off on a tangent, but it was not getting into the anger. There was really not much vipassana going on. I was getting good at the kind of concentrating on the anger, stewing, but really not getting beneath it. And so that was the doubt. Am I really staying with it? Or this phrase, it's like this, I was actually meditating on it's like this as opposed to anger is like this. Because anger is still very uncomfortable. Or envy or jealousy or lust. You know, take your pick. I've got everything. And so, and so, but that's the numbing part. But you can't just drop it quickly. All you can do is create this setting of questioning. So that's the part of doubt that it creates a sense of curiosity. It's wholesome doubt not accepting things as they are. So there's a phrase in Pali, Dhamma Vichaya. It's the analysis of qualities. Or there was another spiritual teacher in India called Ramana Maharshi, and his philosophy is called Atma Vichara. Same. It's translated as self-inquiry, but it's actually inquiry of the self. And if you read his talks, it's all about keep coming back. It can get very tedious, very boring. Or same Utejaniya, he'll keep saying, right view, keep coming back. But it's that after a while we can either get turned off by teachers like them for not giving us more, but they're not giving us more is because what they give us is their experience. What they want us to do is experience our experience. So they keep hammering the same message, keep questioning, keep questioning, don't believe. So let me share with you a few examples from my life where it really 
came home to me about the gap between it's like this and what I was experiencing. So I was at a beautiful seaside place out on the West Coast watching sunset. And I was there for you know, 15, 20 minutes of the sunset. So the first day I realized how many pictures I was taking. I was not there with the sunset at all. I was just inhaling that stuff, saving it, saving it, saving it. I did not want the sunset to... I don't know what I didn't... I don't know what I was thinking, because I wasn't. So that was the first day. And then as I was downloading the pictures onto, the, onto my laptop, I realized, this is stupid. You know, the sunset, the whole experience of sunset went down, and what I experienced was looking at this little 2.5-inch screen when there was this panoramic view of a three-dimensional sunset. How pathetic. And I'm a psychiatrist, boy. (laughs) But then the next day as I was there, there was this beautiful scene, again, wonderful sunset, and there was this intense longing. You know, I'd waited for this moment all day, but what I felt was sadness of this. Because, again, I'm intellectualizing it. I can't, you know, it was an experience that this thing was going to end. And then, of course, the last day of the vacation, the vacation ended. So there was a kind of poignancy of, you know, you wait to get to this beautiful place. You're there, and the first half looks good, but the second half, there is this tinge of heaviness that starts coming in. But that's okay, but I wasn't there for that. And so it's like this. My mind kept saying, it's like this. Isn't that beautiful? But what it was feeling was dukkha of this, it's going to end. Then in many settings, especially in people who are, who are going through pain, whether physical pain or loss of a loved one, you hear phrases like, this too shall cease, or this, this, any, everything that arises ceases. Okay. Nice, comforting phrases. You know, many of them came from the Buddha. That's fine. But again, the, the purpose of those phrases were to bring our attention to the here and now. But what I noticed is that they also can become this kind of numbing phrases that come in the way of us experiencing what's going on. Because what I noticed that when I start digging into the first bite of my ice cream sundae, my mind never thinks everything that arises that also ceases. This too shall end is not in my mind because this shall not end is what my mind's thinking. You know, on my flight out to a nice vacation, there is no sense of, sadness. If someone told me, reminded me that this too shall cease, I'm going to smack them on the face. <laughs> because, because I'm all about this shall be permanent. And then the last, and I don't know if you do this, but if it's a seven-day vacation, there is this middle of the week, middle of the seven days, and then I'm, I start to descend. Am I just the only one? Or? <laughs> but it's the, why should it be different? But that's how it is. But if I don't question that, then I could have an inappropriate euphoria at the beginning and an inappropriate dysphoria or sadness at the end. But that's how things are, but I can open myself to that. And this is a really good example that I heard. So this is a couple of steps removed, so I'm paraphrasing it. So Stephen Batchelor, who's a teacher in England, so he heard this anecdote from Ajahn Sumedho, uh, who's again another teacher in England. So 
Apparently, Ajahn Sumedho was at a hotel waiting to give a talk. And this gentleman walks in and he sees a bouquet of flowers at the other end of the room. And his eyes just light up. And so this gentleman walks across to admire the bouquet. And as he's nearing it, Ajahn Sumedha noticed a gradual but rapid, not gradual but rapid, but subtle but rapid change in the facial expression of this gentleman as he realized that these flowers were plastic. So his reflection was that how ironic. You know, we think about impermanence. Impermanence makes us feel sad. What could be more permanent than plastic flowers? <laughs> but we seek pleasure, satisfaction, a deep... I mean, how can you describe the joy of seeing a bouquet of real flowers? But the beauty is in their impermanence, just like with my sunset experience. But I want things to be permanent. So if I were in a permanent state of sunsetting, I think I'll be bored. I truly believe I'd want some rain and some snow and sleet. Not tomorrow. This, uh... <laughs> so as I, I mean, as I was preparing for this talk and came across, I started picking out examples from talks. And I'd heard talks like this. I'm a Dharma seed junkie. You know, but what I noticed is that as I was preparing for this talk, you know, one of the anxieties was, boy, these folks are going to show up. And I'd better have something meaningful for them. And I'm being honest. You know, there is this, this expectation that you can't walk away from here uh, with nothing to show for it. I noticed that the same talk that I heard before, I now was picking up sentences that, they had, that had completely left me. But that also spoke to the frame of my mind. My mind right now was receptive for anything that spoke of doubt and faith so that I could put together this talk. But in the process, I also realized, boy, doubt is good. But not in a pathological self-doubt, but don't take anything your mind says for granted. So here I have now faith that inspires me and gets me going and says, believe in it, trust in it, do this, do this. But then my doubt says, don't believe anything you see. Keep questioning, keep questioning. So how do you find the, the balance? You know, many of us come to meditation um, in times of distress physical pain, you know, we feel like we don't deal with situations in a certain way, in, in a way we think should be appropriate. And then we come looking for a relief from that distress. And meditation initially does offer some relief. But then we come to believe that Vipassana, our mindfulness is peace, it's calmness, it's concentration. And so we create this myth of a state of enlightenment or mindfulness. And the reality, as we know, is far from the truth. 
And so I think for many of us who practice for a while, we get through that illusion after maybe a couple of years. But I, I think now I'm, I'm grateful that I went through the process because I wish I had, but it took me this long to realize that I did get through that illusion, but without realizing that I went through that. Because it was a little disheartening for a while to realize that nirvana is not a state of permanent peace and calm, where I'm going to be floating just an inch above the road all the time. And people will look up at me and think, what a great calm guy. It's, it's mucky, it's yucky. But if we don't see that, then what happens is if the, the sense of calm, peace, or our bad habits when we relate to people in our lives or situations, then we begin to lose um, faith in the process. Oh, meditation is not for me. It has done nothing for me. As if it is supposed to do something for you. And so therein lies the process of questioning. Sometimes it, not sometimes, I, I personally, from my experience, I think it's essential to have a guiding teacher who can pose those questions for you. But then, again, they can just give you the momentum, but then you have to do the hard work of really, at least once a week, picking up some ugly situation in your life and be comfortable staying with it. And I can't tell you what will inspire your practice. But what I can tell you is don't go with any of the examples that I cited. Because they are my examples, my story. Not copyrighted or patented, but then you're following somebody else's story. And if you're looking for energy, again, you're looking outside there. So my experience is that all I can do is create the conditions you know, create the conditions to inspire my practice. And being here is one of those things. Is that how many people show up here? It's amazing. But at the same time, don't buy into the story. So if I get a feedback at the end that this talk was useful to some of you, I'll be honest, there'll be this kind of ego rush that comes up. And I'll be writing that for a while. <laughs> I have an ego. But the thing is, uh, it's happened a few times in the past where I never watched it. It last for, lasted for two, three days. Uh, and it's, it's not even ego, because I, I, my mind believes I am not egotistic, but that's what it is. So now, please, some of you give me some positive feedback at the end, but on my right back, I'm going to stay with the sense of euphoria, if it happens, um, is that what's going on? Because to me, that is selfing. Not selfie, but selfing. Is that if, oh, it could be also negative feedback. If some of you say, that guy was awful, I have no idea what he was talking about, that's a blow to my ego. Because I took time and effort to prepare this talk and didn't get anything across. But either way, whether it's a adulation or criticism, that's how it is. But what I feel, I have to stay with it. And not, if it's adulation, not buy into the fact that those folks like my talk. Or if it's criticism that those folks didn't like my talk, 
it's all about certain frame of mind here that is unwilling to just accept things as they are. And, and faith is not just a process of pumping yourself up. That's an intellectual process. And up to a certain extent, it's important because to get to the meditation cushion every day at home requires some pumping yourself up. To come to this talk this evening, some of you, I'm sure, had to you know, just kind of push yourself. That's, you know, there's like anything un- uncomfortable or unpleasant, you just go through the motions. But this kind of inspiration that you feel... Again, don't get into the false sense of inspiration. That's just like a buzz that comes up and it will get deflated as quickly as it arose. So how do you create conditions in your lives to find this balance? Well, stay with that question. But the final point I would say is that as with my experiences of the last few years and uh, many of you who've done long retreats, you know, you, you have this experience that really inspires you, some insight that you gain during a retreat. And it, it, it provides enough momentum for weeks, months. But what I noticed, as I mentioned earlier, is that that becomes another static place. And after six, seven years of practice and a few long retreats, it's you can get to a point where it can just become a comfortable way of accepting that, oh, my life's okay. I meditate for half an hour. I don't react to things the way I did five years ago. But question yourself, is that what you want out of your practice? And so now I understand why so many retreat leaders start off the first evening with the question, why are you here? I found that incredibly boring and annoying. I mean, initially boring. Why are you here? I'm here to meditate. Boom, there's an answer. Then it's like, did you all go to the same school? Were you taught to ask the same question? Why are you here? And they keep hammering. There's one retreat where I think the first one and a half days, that same question. Now I understand. It's because they were getting me beyond the point of thinking about that question to asking that question, contemplating on that question, I don't know the answer. I don't know why I meditate. But I do find that there is this kind of neutral tone when I ask me that question. Because some of the distress in my life a few years ago that prompted me to turn to meditation, those have kind of evened out. I'm at an equilibrium with you know, my professional life, some of the pain and distress that I see. But I've now found this, there's not that distress kind of fueling it. And then the other thing is, it's a cyclical process. So you have an experience that inspires you, you ride it, and then you plateau. Then you feel the plateau, start questioning, meet with Mark, meet with your dharma buddies, go for a retreat, and start the cycle again. I think that's all I have.
what I would suggest is maybe we sit for about three or four minutes and contemplate on this tedious discourse that I just gave. I'm going to contemplate on why I use the word tedious. And then we can open up to some questions. Any questions? So the question was, you know, a, a difficult situation arises in our lives, and, and you recognize after a series of cycles that a few days down the line, your mind drops it without any effort. So why can't it do it at that moment? And so the question was, what could be the psychological processes that could be preventing us from letting go. Number one, I won't give you a psychological answer because I have plenty. I was trained for that for five years. But that again becomes a facile, linear, cognitive explanation. So a phrase that Mark Nunberg has used many times, again came home to be uh, during this process, is that the mind has this amazing arrogance to believe that this moment is not worthy of my attention. And so whether it's boredom when I'm sitting, and it has to create this fantasy. Whereas, just as I think about this setting, what a beautiful setting. I have the support of so many people, but my mind wants to be somewhere else. But when it comes to painful emotions, I think it's, a, to me, it's an aversion at that point. Is that it is, it is so uncomfortable, and it brings up unpleasant reactive patterns that I don't equate with myself. I'm not an angry person. He makes me angry. I'm not an envious person. Him buying the Lexus makes me angry. 
you know, whatever, take it. Our beautiful woman out there, whatever feeling engenders, it's all externalized. So psychologically, I could say that it could be because my mind is a defensive mechanism. But for me, it's also the habit pattern of thinking because we are a problem-solving species. Because that's what's helped us survive. A, some, something threatens our existence and we solve the problem. That was fine in the savannah. But right now, my colleague, who doesn't behave the way I think he should, and I'm the medical director and he does not follow the department policy, and so I get angry, but I shouldn't be angry, but also I can't just be angry at a fellow colleague. So that tension, because my animal instinct is to be dictatorial and make him or her behave, but the civilized part of me says, I can't do that. And so that tension really, you know, comes up as anger, but I can't stay with it. So it's easier for me, as part of my training and conditioning, to externalize it, create a story, and keep spinning that story the entire weekend. For you, you said three, four days. So the answer to that, I think, is individual to each of us, because our own psychological framework is what makes us react in that way. So... I'm just going to go back and um, reflect on these situations. But also to be careful because my life is full of these examples. So I can suddenly become really neurotically obsessed about all these negative emotions. So I can pick and choose maybe once a day. So that's why what I found helpful is to bring back an event from earlier in the day in my evening sit and then feel the tension and then stay there. Again, not buy into the answer, because I think the true answer is many decades away. Yeah. It is so long as you're aware of the mind's habit to create stories. What I've learned is it is... The mind is remarkably good at conning us, at least conning me. So I may start off with uh, a situation in the Middle East and say, let me stay with it. It's distressing. There are no easy answers. But it's amazing how quickly it can create a story about my distress. I may not be thinking about the two parties there, but I can create a story about my own helplessness, inability. Well, I'm sitting here in America and... The, we can think we are contemplating while we are thinking. That's the funny thing I found. I had a, a patient years ago who said he could not go, he could not concentrate on school because of all the poverty and suffering in the world. And so it, at, at a very superficial level, it made sense. But in reality, there was a lot of self-doubt. It wasn't like he was solving the problem of poverty and suffering in the world, but it became a nice, comforting explanation. And so you, you can, what I found, uh, at least recently, I, I throw up these big questions, but with an awareness that I'm using the energy to focus on. Not as in the questions are, for me, more a, a kind of a, a situation to experience a strong emotion. It's been a good summer. My life is relatively stress-free. So if I want to have some, some meat to work on, so I just, you know, pick up the newspaper. But then throw that situation up 
and then keep watching the emotions and then the tension because my mind is not comfortable staying with big questions. It wants an answer. It goes into a dialogue. So I, when I pull back, that tension is where I found meditative meat. Sorry, it's a vegetarian setting. Meditative substance. Substance. I think we were overrun by minutes, so let's just settle down for a minute. May we all have the wisdom and the courage to navigate between the various dichotomies in our life and stay with the tension in the hope of finding wisdom. And may the benefits of our practice, may the merits of our practice be to the benefit of all beings everywhere. May everyone be free from suffering and distress. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.